Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department through the Anthropology Public Outreach Program, or APOP for short, and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, we are here with Dr. Bruce Floyd from the University of Auckland, New Zealand. So welcome, Dr. Floyd. Yeah, thank you very much. I think you're actually our furthest traveler to to be on this (laughs) podcast so far, at least. Well, the first thing people will notice is my accent is not a New Zealand accent. That's true. But I've been there at 19 years now, have showed no tendency to lose my (laughs) accent. (laughs) So that actually leads me into the first question that I have for you. Um, So you are an anthropologist. Yes. So could you give us a little bit of your origin story about how you got into anthropology. Sure. I was, uh, I grew up in rural Northern California and I went to a community college to begin with because my family didn't have enough money to send me to a better university. And when I began, I, in my first, I was going to be a veterinarian. Oh, wow. And because I'd grown up on a farm and worked with animals and was good with them. I took a zoology course and the zoology professor was a curious individual. He was a creation scientist. So it was like taking zoology in the 18th century, (laughs) which I really didn't mind particularly. That didn't trouble me. But there were many debates on the campus, and this is many, many, many years ago. This is 45, 50 years ago. There were debates between creationists and evolutionists, and I was curious. I already had a position, but I was curious to see how the debates were handled. And this, this guy saw me sitting in a group of people listening you know, pr- prior to the beginning of the uh, particular debate, and he smiled, and he, I think he assumed I was a creationist. And when he learned that I wasn't, he wasn't a nice person. Oh. He really wasn't. Uh, he ended up giving me, I got a 93% in the class, and he gave me a B plus. <laughs> and at the time, I just accepted it, shrugged my shoulders. But I was really, I was annoyed. I, I was doing well in my chemistry courses, and I remained a biology major for a, four or five semesters at least. In the fifth semester that I was there, I took a, um, no, actually, this is, I had actually left the community college and gone to San Francisco State University. And in the first semester there, I took a course on uh, the introduction to biological anthropology and thought it was fascinating. That's and how so a lot I, of our students start. <laughs> yeah, so I decided to change my major. Yeah. And the rest is history. <laughs> That's amazing. I got my master's back when I still had hair, and I lost my hair when I was probably 26 or 27. Uh, but I didn't go on for a PhD because I, we couldn't afford it. Yeah. And I was then married, and we had a daughter and who's done extremely well for herself. We ended up, I went to work for the federal government actually for, after a few stumbles, for example, selling Kirby vacuum cleaners, which was a, <laughs> an awful job. And... I worked for the federal government for seven and a half years while my wife went back to school and got a master's degree in accounting. And as she was about to take the CPA exams, she said, when I pass the exams and get a good job, would you like to go back and get your PhD? And I said, absolutely. And so I was able to, and I went to the University of Oregon uh, and completed my PhD in 1999. And I've been employed ever since, at first at the University of Hawaii and uh, then at the University of Auckland. That's awesome. That's a really great origin story. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now in anthropology these days? Okay. Well, 
when I began, my skills were in modeling serial growth data, and I investigated growth in Taiwan. And I should say, in between, there's an interesting bit in between here that has made a huge difference to my life. After I graduated with a bachelor's degree in anthropology, a Taiwanese friend got me a job in Taiwan. And it was just a, it was a silly job. It was selling brass bed frames to U.S. servicemen. And I mostly answered angry letters because people didn't get the product that they thought they'd seen <laughs> in the showroom. But I capriciously decided I wanted to learn to speak Chinese. Right. So I did. And I've actually succeeded. I speak Chinese rather well at this point. But I met a woman when I was in Taiwan, and 10 months later we were married, and we've been married as uh, 40 years as of June 3rd of oh, this year. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Well, because I spoke Chinese, I decided to do my PhD research in Taiwan, and that's what I did. And I've done a number of interesting things that I'd like to tell you about. Well, I'll select one of them because I think it's particularly okay. interesting. But in the recent past, in the last seven or eight years, I've sort of redeveloped an interest in cold physiology that I've had for a long, long time. And now I'm looking at applying what's called cold-induced vasodilation response as a way of testing a hypothesis about the peopling of the Pacific and why remote oceanic peoples are much broader, more muscular peoples than people that they are now, we now know quite confidently they are closely related to in Indonesia, the Philippines, and the indigenous peoples of Taiwan. Can you explain the cold-induced vasodilation response for our listeners? Sure. What happens is whether you're in cold air or in cold water, and, and water works better because it removes heat much more efficiently from the body than air. I, I typically have people put their hands into 8 degrees centigrade water, which is about 47, 48 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. For, for the listeners here. <laughs> uh, people will put their hands in, and they actually put them in for a 30-minute period. The first two minutes are somewhat stressful for some people <laughs> because when you put your hands in, your vasculature, the smooth muscle around the uh, veins and arteries that come to the surface, they constrict and cut blood flow dramatically. Mm. And so you, the temperature of your hand plummets. Once it's plummeted, in most people, it falls, it, it reaches equilibrium above water temperature, and then it will rise. And how much it rises varies a great deal. Most people will rise about two or three degrees centigrade, and often they will have multiple waves during this period. So their hands are maintained above water temperature. Some people go dramatically up. I had one person whose father's Mongolian and mother is northern Chinese. Her hand temperature went up to over 25 degrees centigrade for over five minutes, up to a maximum of 26.4. And bear in mind that people's natural temperatures range from about 36 degrees down to about 22 degrees. So her hands were warmer than some people's hands just wandering around quite normally in 72 degree centigrade temperature air. And that was in the cold water. Yes, that was in the cold water. Huh. It was actually, we were both astounded. <laughs> <laughs> so how does this, how does this measurement uh, contribute to your research? So what do you learn from this? Okay. What I'm interested in is, is that we now know that people, you know, people who are called Polynesians mm -hmm. are closely related to other Austronesian speaking peoples in the Philippines, Indonesia, and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And we also there is a 
hypothesis that was developed in the late 1980s and early 1990s by a professor named Phil Horton. Or Horton. He came up with an idea that Polynesians, they are large muscular people because they were the ones who survived the open ocean voyaging over multiple weeks. And he demonstrated that the open ocean is a materially cold environment. It is not freezing, but it is an environment where there's a substantial risk of hypothermia. And he argued that you know, substantial numbers of the crew were lost, were, died of hypothermia, and only the larger individuals survived. At the time he came up with these ideas, Western peoples did not give Polynesians their due with respect to their capability in voyaging. And we now suspect, based upon a great deal of archaeological evidence, that they were very capable. And so, in my view, it's unlikely they would have been willing to sacrifice large numbers of their crew during each voyaging expedition. What I suspect is is that people actually planned. It was team building, if you will. But it was team building that's unlike most team building in as much as it had genetic implications because people were sailing one or 2,000 kilometers away from the origin. And they did return, but only in small numbers. So it restricted gene flow. So you have essentially a socially induced founder's effect. That's my hypothesis. (laughs) Now, Horton argued, you know, his argument is contrary to this view. I can test this by looking at the cold-induced vasodilation response amongst different Austronesian-speaking peoples because we would anticipate that Polynesians would have a substantially reduced response if there had been intense selection to reduce the risks of hypothermia. And that's because when you're active, if you have a strong response, you radiate heat out of your extremities. And over the medium term, over a multiple-day voyage, that would put you at greater risk of hypothermia. Because then you're yeah. you're actually expending energy and the your body can yeah. cool down faster. Yes, yes. Huh. So if, if there is a substantial risk of death from hypothermia, having a cold-induced vasodilation response when active would not be to your advantage. Right. And so far I have tested, I have... Uh, 20, actually, this is a sample that I've now got into spreadsheets and done these statistical analyses. I actually have more data collected now. But it looks like Polynesians look, in terms of their CIVD response, they look very much like other Austronesian-speaking peoples. And they have a stronger response than you'd anticipate based upon where they are now found. They're tropical peoples. Right. But unlike tropical peoples, for example, in southern India they have a moderately strong response. This is a response that is actually fairly similar to Northern Europeans. I think it's because, well, in fact, we now have a, are pretty confident that Austronesian peoples left China, you know, central and southern China at about 5,000 years ago, somewhere between five and 6,000 years ago. Where their ancestors were prior to that, I don't think we have a a very good idea. Although genetically, you can see clinal variation in genes through Asia. So it strikes me that it's probable that some of their ancestors did experience seasonally freezing environments. And this is the argument for why people have this response, is it's a it's conditioned on living in seasonally freezing environments where you reduce the risk of frostbite when well-dressed okay. so that you're protecting your yeah, extremities. That makes sense. What's actually really interesting is, are you familiar with the Disney movie Moana? Mm-hmm. We actually that had... That was quite controversial in New Zealand. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. That's interesting. Um, 
we had a archaeologist on a couple of seas or a couple of episodes ago, Dr. Julie Field, and she mm-hmm. does her work in Fiji. And so it's interesting because we talked about the archaeology of moving islands, and so now you're giving us the view of the the response of the people that are living mm-hmm. there now. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, and it's an it's something that as soon as Cook made contact with mm-hmm. Polynesians, people have recognized that they seem much larger and more muscular than you'd expect. Right, and it's remained a problem that people really haven't solved. And I suspect that people won't agree that I've solved it either, though I think I have a good idea that will stimulate yeah. discussion. Yeah. And I think that ideas ideas shouldn't be judged on whether they're right or wrong. Ultimately, they should be judged on whether they are constructed so that they can be provide testable hypotheses and f- further academic thoughts about yeah. the issues themselves. That's one of our big themes is that we're big in this podcast on provocation, right? Mm. So we like to provoke our listeners and to get them to think about things. And so that's, yeah, that fits in very much with what you were just saying. So you've kind of touched on it before, but could you tell us a little bit about how your work contributes to our understanding of human diversity? Just summarize it. I think that it's an understanding of this particular research tests or further examines underlying ideas about selection pressures acting to shape the cold-induced vasodilation response itself, because I I have information from people. I have a relatively few Siberians, but I have people, quite a few people from the northernmost part of China, all the way through China, as well as people from various parts of India Mm -hmm. and Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, and then to Indonesia and the Philippines on out into the Pacific. So I'm, it w- it's focused on Asian peoples, but I also have a respectable number of uh, people of European ancestry as well. And of course, lots of people have m- mixed ancestry. Right. And ultimately, probably all of us do, whether we acknowledge <laughs> it or not. Uh, I think that considering you know, cold physiology broadly, and then how we think about musculature and, and body breadths and the the ideas surrounding, for example, Bergman's and Allen's rules and how right. they apply to humans, these are all things that are tied up in this research. Yeah. And so um, for our listeners, Bergman's and Allen's laws is one of the principles that we talk about in anthropology a yeah. lot. And so this it's this idea applying to uh, all species, not just humans, right. that in colder environments, you tend to see individuals that are shorter, stockier, short appendages. Yeah, short, short appendages, this is Alan's rule, short yep. appendages, short ears, short tails, if you happen yep. to be a mammal with a tail. Uh, and Bergman's is the idea that you, people are wider and you minimize, you know, the sort of greater mass, so you minimize surface area relative to mass, and mass, importantly, is skeletal muscle. I use for my students the idea of a brown bear versus a polar bear, or yeah. deer versus a caribou yep. Um, yep. for that one. Yeah. And it's actually really interesting because when I teach this in my introduction to 2200, which is our physical anthropology, biological mm-hmm. anthropology course, this semester I had a student who said to me uh, when I said, okay, well, this is how we apply it to humans, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this makes sense for general humans. And she raises her hand and she goes, but what about in Hawaii? And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this is kind of the answer to the question That's that she right. was looking for. Well, and it's fascinating in a way. I think Phil Horton deserves a great deal of credit, though I disagree with his fundamental argument. He deserves a great deal of credit in pointing out the, the conditions 
because I do think that people responded to the conditions. I simply don't think that they were passive agents. They were right. active. And, and these were societies that were very thoroughly aware of the open ocean and the challenges right. they faced. And they knew how to deal with them. They're not dumbos. Yeah. <laughs> That's, and then we see the results of it today. Yeah, yes, That's, yes. Yeah. And, and when you look at, for example, the highest correlation with respect to uh, measurements of humans and temperature are body breadths, shoulder breadths, hip breadths. When you look at a, a bivariate plot of hip breadth relative to actually latitude in this instance uh, as a proxy for temperature. Okay. What you see is a very strong, actually it's a moderately strong Pearson's correlation of about 0. 0.67, 0. 0.68. The, the very largest deviation or residual are Polynesians. They sit way away from the, the line of best fit, you know, the prediction. Huh. So essentially 60% ish, give yeah, or take, yeah. of normal human variation can be explained by latitude, except for the Polynesians. Yes, they sit, well, they sit way away. It, huh. it, it doesn't do a good job of predicting them right. where they're now found. Right. But the key being yeah. where they're now found. found. Exactly. And the conditions that led to where they are now found. Right. The open ocean, you know, right. and, and uh, spray you know, it's it's you're wet. If you're out, anybody right. who's been out on a small boat in the open ocean, you know you're going to get wet. <laughs> yep. And that has a chilling, literally a chilling effect. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, does as we're wrapping up, um, one of the things that I like to ask our guests is, what advice would you give to somebody who's interested in exploring this field more? Well, I would take an introduction to biological anthropology course Mm -hmm. as the very first step. Read widely. Uh, Don't worry too much about the the fact that you it leads you into things that you didn't expect. We all have that. I I got into uh, when I very when I started at the very beginning. I said I'm never going to do bones. I now do bones. (laughs) When I started on bones, I said I'm never going to do teeth. I hate teeth. I now study teeth. Yes. So, yeah. Oh, teeth and bones are fascinating. <laughs> they are fascinating. Although I will put a pitch in for the study of living peoples can help tell us about the past yeah. in ways that I think sometimes we haven't rigorously enough considered. Yeah, I think your research and yeah. what you explained today really emphasizes that. Yeah, when I have a graduate student who is, has done something quite spectacular, investigating living peoples, looking at common stressors and their impact on skeletal growth, and then modeling growth using the longitudinal measurements from the Denver growth study of tibial growth. Mm -hmm. She's looked at them, and then she's used this modeling process that she's created to then evaluate archaeological finds and, and the lengths of tibias of kids who've been esti- whose ages have been estimated using dental development, which is much more, I would use the word highly canalized, but right. that's a word w- that people go, huh? <laughs> and, and it simply means that it's much more genetically regulated. It's not to say that developmental environments don't play a role, but they play a much smaller role than skeletal growth. Right. Skeletal growth can, is much more amenable to slowing and then speeding up and slowing right. down that kind of phenomenon, whereas teeth pretty much just develop. So what we'll have to do is we'll have to get her over here to (laughs) explain when she's done. Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, Dr. Floyd, I want to thank you so much for coming today to be a guest on our podcast. I very much appreciate it. 
Yeah, thank you very much. And hopefully I haven't done too badly. You have not. (laughs) So for our listeners, thank you again for joining us today. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for our next episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU. Or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. And leave us a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it, just like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department.